following presentation is part of a six-week class titled Introduction to Mindfulness. The class is offered at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome back, everyone. So tonight is week five. Last week, uh, among many things, we talked about working with distractions and that uh, it really comes right down to the basic intention of practice. We're not trying, as nice as it is, to have a really beautiful state of mind where things are balanced and quiet and peaceful. We're not trying to make that happen directly, or maybe to some degree, but the, the best way to support the arising of wholesome states is to be interested in the states that are arising and to be interested in how states come and go. Different my, uh, mental qualities, different emotional states, how they come and go. So in a way, if I'm here really wanting to be peaceful, it makes a lot of sense that that would cause frustration, not peacefulness. So what is the cause for peacefulness? What is the cause for ease? What is the cause for being free from attachment? So if we want to be free, then we practice being free with the experience that is arising, as opposed to thinking that I want this other kind of experience to arise for me. That causes stress and frustration. But being interested in being free with the experience that is arising, both the mental and the physical experience that is arising. It's the same with our daily life, of course. And, you know, I've said this a couple times, but it's worth repeating. And uh, next week we'll spend even more time talking about practicing through the day. But the idea is to not just be free when we're sitting in our protected little meditation space, but the idea is to be free all day long in the difficult interactions that we have with the uncertainty that comes with life, is there a way of being free? Well, we practice being free. And in a way, the formal sitting practice in this relatively simple container of our formal meditation time, we practice being free so that we get good at it. Then out in the world, when there's a lot more coming and going, a lot more seductive things coming and going, people talking to us, we're talking to other people, but maybe we can be free with that, too. So that, that really changes, then, our attitude or our relationship to what we call distractions. So instead of thinking, like, somebody is noisy near you when you're sitting, or your mind is noisy when you're sitting, or your body is restless or achy when you're sitting, and it can be so easy to think, oh, I can't really practice well today because I've got a lot of physical discomfort or my mind's really wound up, or I'm just really sleepy, or this person's sniffling next to me, or you know, it could be any number of reasons, and we think, well, I can't practice. But that's because we have the wrong view about what practice is. If we think practice is you know, having conditions just right so I can be peaceful, that's not practice. That's the cause for stress. Thinking, if I just get all the conditions right, I'll be peaceful, is stressful. And we ruin things that way. With our, We ruin our relationships thinking, if I can just get him or her just right, then I'll be peaceful. 
If I can just get this body just right, I'll be peaceful. If I can just make my mind just right, I'll be peaceful. So it's basically approaching life from a control point of view. You know, if I can just get in control, I'll be peaceful. I'll get, I'll be safe. I'll be where I want to be. And that, uh, you know, little by little, we've discovered that really hurts. That causes a lot of stress, that attitude, that I have to control things in order to be peaceful. So with this practice, we, you know, formally, in our formal meditation, or walking meditation, we, you know, enter this particular simplified version of life, where we're just sitting, aware of the breath, or walking back and forth. But we have a relatively simple version of life, and then we practice being free Whatever arises in that container, in the mind, in the body, around us, whatever it is that arise, arises for that period of time, for that 30 minutes, that hour, we take it as practice. So what are we doing? We're practicing being free. Now, you can't be free with something that you're retreating from. So to be truly free with an experience, we have the heart, in a sense, has to turn toward the way that it is. We have to be intimate engaged, present, with the sensations in the body, with the qualities in the mind, with the sounds in the room, whatever it is that's arising in our experience, we turn toward it and, in a sense, we acknowledge it's like this now. This is how it is. Can this be okay? When we ask the question, can this be okay, can the heart, can the mind be free with this, free of attachment with this experience, free of identification free of grasping, free of controlling, free of struggling with these sounds just as they are, with these sensations just as they are, with this sleepy mind just as it is, this restless mind just as it is, this achy body just as it is. So whatever it is that's drawing the attention, we turn to it and we practice being free, allowing that experience to be the way that it is, because in this moment, that's how it is. It's already this way now. So the question is, isn't, you know, should it be this way? Because it's already this way. Or the question isn't, would I prefer it to be another way? Because it doesn't really matter in this moment what we prefer. What matters is, it is this way now. The body does ache. There is this disturbing sound. So given that this is how it is, how might the heart mind be free? free of unnecessary stress, free of unnecessary reactivity in this moment. You see why that would be such a skillful investigation in that moment. And if we practice this, we get good at this, like anything. But if we practice struggling, which is our normal reaction to when conditions aren't just right, we believe in, you know, we have a lot of faith in reactivity and struggle and methods of control. And... Uh, that always sets up the this, this stress in the body and mind. So instead, we're saying, well, you know, I could try to change things, but maybe I'll try, instead I'll make the effort for the heart, the mind, the body to be at ease with the conditions as they are. I'll take a different approach to the conditions that are arising in the moment. And it doesn't mean that forever we're never going to respond in a more direct way to the experience. It just means a lot of the times when things arise, there's really not much we can do about it. So in the formal meditation time, we practice for those moments when there really isn't anything 
useful or appropriate to do, like how to be free when not only it's this way, but it's unlikely in the immediate moments to change. So how might this heart find peace or ease or release, even though the conditions aren't the way I would like them to be? So then we don't mind distractions because that's the whole point, is to work with conditions as they are. And believe it or not, as difficult as it is to work with unpleasant conditions, like unpleasant sounds or unpleasant sensations in the body or unpleasant mind states, it's even more difficult to practice with really pleasant mind states, pleasant sensations, surprisingly. I mean, we like, I'm not saying it's not more pleasant when it's pleasant. It is more pleasant. But the, the problem with really pleasant experiences, we, it doesn't occur to the mind to practice. What occurs to the mind is just, well, I don't have to practice now because it's really nice for a while. <laughs> and then it changes. But now we're out of the habit of practicing. So when things are pleasant, when your mind does feel calm, when the body does feel free of pain, when the room does feel really nice and still, no disturbances, then we want to be mindfully aware, oh, it's like this. Pleasantness is like this. So are we allowing the pleasantness to be, or are we clinging to it? Oh, I don't want this to change. Right? Then all of a sudden we've inserted stress in that pleasant experience. We've ruined it, basically. But if we're mindful of it, mindful that it's pleasant, mindful that pleasantness, like everything else, comes and goes, so we're present, we're really showing up for it, but not clinging to it, not attached to it. So whether it's a difficult sit or a really beautiful sit, it's all practice. And remember, and I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, it's really inappropriate to judge a sit based on how pleasant it is. Really what we're interested in is learning. We want to see things about the mind that we haven't seen before. That's the whole point of practice. Now, we can learn when experience is really unpleasant. We can learn when experience is really pleasant. And we can learn when experience is really neutral. But, of course, we like pleasantness. I'm not saying we don't like it. But it doesn't mean we're learning a lot when the experience of our sit is pleasant. It just means it's pleasant. You know, there are a lot of people who have a relatively pleasant life. But it doesn't mean they're having much insight in their life. And there are a lot of people who are having a really unpleasant life. They live in a war zone, or they're in poverty, or they're being oppressed in some way. It doesn't mean you're necessarily going to learn just because it's painful. But that's what's relevant, not whether your life is difficult relative to other people, or easier relative to other people, or about the same as most other people. What matters is, are we learning from our life? Are we turning toward experience, open, opening up with interest, that balanced interest, and learning how to be free with the way, with the conditions as they are. Either in life, I mean, just to simplify it, we're either practicing struggling all day long, struggling with the conditions, wanting them to be better. Even when the conditions are pleasant, we're struggling to make that pleasantness last. So either we're spending our moments of our life, lives struggling and then getting the unavoidable stress that comes with struggle, or we're spending the moments of our life being free with the experiences that are arising, that are coming and going. If we practice being free, we get really good at being free, really good at being peaceful, really good at non 
attachment. But if we're struggling, we get really good at attachment and the stress that goes with attachment. It's a really simple way, because then you can ask yourself the question, in any moment of your life or sit, you can just ask, well, what kind of heart is being cultivated now? Like, given how the heart or mind is relating to the moment, what's being set in motion? Struggle? Resistance? Hate? Greed? Or peace? Acceptance? Love? Patience? You know, we just ask. Because if we ask and we look, if asking kind of opens the mind, and then we have a moment of mindfulness, and we'll learn, oh, this is not what I want to set in motion. When I'm on my deathbed, I don't want to be the person who spent his life cultivating struggle, because that's what I'll do at my deathbed. I'll struggle. I don't want to die, right? What sort of qualities do we want to develop so that they'll be there when we're di dying or when we're with someone who's dying or when some difficult experience is arising for us? Because that's what we want to be cultivating all day long. It's too late if we think on our deathbed, I think I'll take up the practice of mindfulness. <laughs> First of all, you know, it's not optimal conditions. <laughs> you know, often there's a lot of pain and drugged to, to deal with the pain. What we want at that point are really uh, powerful momentum for our practice that will just carry, take care of us at those times. So, now is the time. I'll leave it here. Now remember, we're going to do some loving-kindness practice tonight. So for the first 15 minutes, I'll um, introduce the loving-kindness practice. And then about 15 minutes into the sit, I'll just suggest that we move into the mindfulness practice. Now maybe some of you have read the instructions <coughs> that were sent out last week, but it's okay if you haven't, because I'll go through it for this sit. So feel free to stretch out your legs so you'll be comfortable for about 30 minutes. You can even stand for a moment if you want. And make sure you have what you need to be comfortable. So we even bring our mindfulness into the process of settling into our posture. So we're aware of what it feels like to be making the last adjustments to the body, listening to the body, taking care of it, finding as best we can a stable, upright, comfortable posture. And then taking the time to take a few slow, deep breaths. <coughs> Simply noticing what it's like to fill the lungs slowly. And then what it's like to slowly empty the lungs. 
As if we have all the time in the world for these few deep breaths. Really showing up, being aware of this breathing process, and then eventually give the breathing process over to the body, trust the body to do the breathing, however that might be. It's often nice to begin the loving-kindness practice with a short forgiveness reflection. So let's begin. Just feel your heart center. Then bring to mind somebody you've harmed in the past. It could be recent or long ago. Whether you did that intentionally or was an accident, but just have that sense of what happened, the harm you've caused, and a felt sense of being right with the person. And then just reflecting in your mind, it's not easy being a human being. It's so easy to act out of fear, act out of greed. So I'm asking for your forgiveness. Please forgive me for any harm that I might have caused you. So go ahead on your own, maybe two, three, four times, as if you were talking with this person, silently in your mind. (laughs) Do your best to ask for forgiveness. And after a few times, feel free to bring somebody else to mind that you've harmed in the past. And again, take the time, remember the situation, and again, reflect how easy it is as a human being to make mistakes and to cause harm. And from that understanding, then, in your own words, ask for forgiveness, as if you were talking with this person.
you can continue. But when you're ready, we bring to mind people that have harmed us. And probably it's best not to bring to mind the person who harmed you the most in your life, but somebody that feels safe to bring to mind. And once again, you use your imagination, remember the event and the pain that was caused you. But also remember that it's not easy being a human being. Remember how easy it is to make mistakes. So then, as best we can, in our own words, we offer forgiveness to this person as if we were talking with them. Go ahead and do that a few times for each person you bring to mind. And finally, we take a few moments and we forgive ourselves. So just reflecting on this life, this mind, and of course recognizing this is an imperfect mind, an imperfect life, aware of all the ways that we've lived that have caused ourselves harm and caused others harm, all the different ways we haven't really taken care of ourselves. So as best I can, I forgive myself for being an imperfect human being. So find your own way to offer forgiveness to yourself. Do that a few times.
And then we move on to the loving-kindness practice. So we'll be doing three things. We're feeling the heart center, just energetically how it is. We're bringing somebody to mind. It might be ourself, or we might bring to mind somebody else. Generally, we begin by bringing to mind somebody easy to love. And generally, not a complicated relationship in our life, like a partner. But maybe a niece or a nephew or a pet or a mentor who's really been there for you in your life. Somebody that you truly love, have a lot of good feelings for. So bring that person to mind and feel your heart center. And then the third thing we do is we repeat some phrases. And I'll give you the traditional phrases several times, but feel free over time to modify them so that the words really feel right for you. So we're sitting, we're feeling the heart, we're remembering somebody easy to love, easy to care about. And I'll say the phrase out loud, and you can repeat it silently in your mind. May you be safe and protected in all ways. May your heart be happy and peaceful. And may you be healthy and free from pain. May you take care of your life with ease and joy. And however you can squeeze it in, you might find it useful to say the person's name. And you begin again. May you be safe and protected in all ways. May you be happy and peaceful. May your body be healthy and free from pain. And may you take care of your life with ease and joy. May you be safe and protected in all ways. May your heart be happy and peaceful. May you be healthy and free from pain. And may you take care of your life with ease and joy. So continue for a few more rounds and feel that each phrase is a simple gift. We're offering the gift of a good wish to this person.
Feeling the heart as we repeat the phrases, remembering the person. And let's take some time and do the phrases for ourselves. So first, just the felt sense of this life right here. Feel the heart center as we just begin to simply care about this life right here. May I be safe and protected in all ways. And may this heart be happy and peaceful. May the body be healthy and strong. And may I take care of this life with ease and joy. Just continue on your own. You can bring to mind another easy person if you want, or even a group like you might bring to mind your family or a group of close friends. So you can use small groups or large groups or individuals. May you all be safe and protected from harm. May you have happy hearts, peaceful hearts and healthy bodies free from pain. And may you all take care of your lives with ease and joy, with great skill. And just continue on your own. Of course, the practice can keep expanding, including more and more people. So the different categories beyond the good friends and beyond yourself would be neutral people. 
So you could bring to mind like a neighbor you don't know well or a colleague at work or even somebody sitting to the right of you or to the left of you that you don't really know. But you know they're a human being and you know they want to be happy just in the same way we, each of us, wants to be happy. We just hold them, have a felt sense of them in our heart. May you be safe and protected in all ways. Just as I wish to be happy, may you also be happy and peaceful. With good health. May you take care of your life with ease and joy. We'll end this part of the meditation by bringing to mind all beings, even our enemies, so-called enemies or difficult people in our lives, and all our friends, relatives, all the acquaintances, and all the beings that are unseen, unknown, all the creatures, the animals, even the simple animals, the bugs, worms, fish, May all living beings be safe, protected from harm. May all beings be happy and peaceful, healthy and free from pain. May all beings be at ease, free from suffering and free from the causes of suffering. For a few more seconds now, just allow this simple friendliness of the heart, simple kindness of the heart to radiate out in all directions. As if we're filling the space of the universe with our good wishes. May all beings be at ease. We'll just allow the practice to come into mindfulness. So we're mindfully aware now of the effect of having done the loving-kindness practice. Mindfully aware of the way the mind is, the way the heart is now, the way the body is. Aware of any positive effects from the practice.
And aware of the body sitting, aware of the breath moving in the body, and allow the attention to go to the anchor that you've been training with. And we'll continue the mindfulness practice in silence. Most of you now have a real sense of how to cultivate this continuity of mindful presence, balance of alertness and relaxation, using the anchor but noticing the strong distractions that arise when they do, practice non-attachment, practice being free with the conditions that come and go. So we'll continue in silence.
last minute or two, remembering to keep it really simple, practicing being free with experience as it is. then to prepare for daily life practice, if you usually practice with your eyes closed, just for the last minute or so, let's practice now with the eyes open. And of course, you don't need to look around, just gazing down toward the floor in front. And aware of the six sense gates, the different ways we know the world, so... Aware of seeing, seeing is like this. Hearing. Sensitive to smells and tastes. And of course, sensitive to the whole world of touch, temperature, hardness, softness, roughness, smoothness. And aware of thought. The whole world of memory, image, thought. So this, this moment, is some combination of these six sense gates of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching and thinking. All of which are being known here and now. Can this be okay? to stretch out your legs if you need to. That was about 35 minutes. So if you've been telling yourself you can't sit for more than 20 minutes, <laughs> it's not true.
course, it often is easier to sit in a group than it is alone. And for maybe for the discussion time, do you mind shutting the ventilation switch? It's the switch above the thermostat. Yeah, that one. Thanks. So we can hear each other a little better. And there are many things we can check in about. So like I mentioned at the beginning last week, we talked about working with obstacles. So both in your formal sitting time, but also in daily life, recognizing challenges, uh, challenging mind states, for example, and how you might skillfully or how you did skillfully work with them, how you didn't skillfully work with them, that would be wonderful to bring up. If you tried the walking meditation, what you've learned from the walking meditation, how it's helpful, how it wasn't helpful, similar or not similar to the sitting practice. <coughs> Your experience with the loving-kindness practice tonight, I'll say a little bit more about it later, but any questions you have about the instructions or about your experience, any comments, and anything else that seems relevant. And again, say your name if you speak up. Yeah, well, even vegans, you know, you can't help it. I'm not saying that it's not good to to do what we can do, like to only eat the foods that we need and um, to be considerate of other creatures when we make choices around food or where we live or what we do with plants. But I think right from the start, we should make this have this assumption that that uh, it's impossible not to cause harm. And we're not aware of how we're causing harm. And that's just how it is. But that doesn't keep me from caring. And in a way, reflecting on how impossible it is not to harm can even break our heart open more and more wide. Until, um, it's like, it really, it's enlivening, that realization that we can't avoid harming, and yet we really care about other living beings. So I wouldn't worry about it because it's not about being perfect. This whole idea of being perfect, whether it's like a perfect vegan or a perfect meditator or a perfect partner, perfect parent, it's really oppressive. That is an oppressive idea, this idea of perfection. So in Buddhism, in Buddhist practice, we're not trying to achieve perfection. We're trying to understand the way it actually is. So in a way, you could say, well, that we're perfectly understanding the way it is. But we're not trying, we're not creating a standard we're trying to meet. We're trying to understand the heart, understand the mind, understand the body as an experience in the moment. And when we do a formal loving-kindness practice, we're recognizing that this heart, this mind, or whatever this is, it does naturally care. So we're investigating it. So the phrases and the bringing people to mind, it's not about just about sending love to a particular person. 
It's about using that relationship we have with that person to investigate the experience of caring. You know, and all the different flavors of caring, from basic friendliness to a deep sort of movement of compassion when we recognize the suffering of another being or our own suffering, to the experience of joy when we're appreciating what's beautiful and what's good and the happiness of others and appreciating our own happiness. That's a joy. We call it uh, appreciative joy. The Pali word is mudita. Maybe if there's time, we'll do a little mudita practice at the end so you have another flavor of the loving-kindness practices. Or equanimity, too, is that a quality of the heart, you know. In this, in this way, the heart, these four emotions of equanimity, appreciative joy, compassion, and basic friendliness, it really allows our heart to meet any moment of life. So these emotions are available. They are appropriate. There's nothing unwholesome about caring, about being friendly, about being joyful when we see something that's beautiful or good, and being equanimous, understanding that things are all happening in this interdependent way that nobody really is in charge of. And that really brings up the sense of equanimity, like, oh, this is how it is. In this moment, it can't be other than this. Now, maybe there's a way of meeting this moment in a way that changes how things are going to unfold in the future moments. But in this moment, there's only one thing to do, Acknowledge it's like this. You know, that it can't, if it could be other than this, it would be other than this. But given the innumerable causes and conditions, this is how it is. This moment is arising out of the past due to all those past conditions, and it's like this. And to really get that about life brings out the equanimity, which is a beautiful quality of the heart. Not unrelated to love, surprisingly. Because we often have this idea of love being synonymous with attachment. But that's a, a worldly kind of love. Like, I love hamburgers. You know, that's a worldly kind of love. It's attachment. But we're not talking about that kind of love. We're talking about uh, a universal love, not something that the mind constructs, like I'm trying to love everybody. It's more like the mind is realizing that it does care. It's a realization, not a doing. We're not doing the compassion. We're realizing compassion. We're realizing appreciative joy. We're realizing basic friendliness and equanimity. Like a a basic potential of the mind or heart. Thanks for bringing that up. What else have you been learning or other questions you have about any of the practices we've been doing? What comes to mind? Yeah, say your name.
Because, no, it, it's not like it wouldn't have been, it would have been wrong if he had slinked away, you know, hoping that she doesn't see him. But to stay put, to stay in the sit, allowed for really powerful insight. Like, the mind can create a big problem, or the mind cannot create a big problem. And that's really important. I mean, one of the real insights, and we need this insight literally tens of thousands of times, is the insight that so much of our world is created by our mind. What the mind brings to the moment is what makes the moment the way it is. We can make heaven or we can make hell. And, uh, you know, you probably wrote or went back and forth, you know, some moments really believing the embarrassment, believing the thoughts that, oh, what she might be thinking or whatever, you know. And other times just having a lot of space around that predicament and it not being charged or heavy or painful in any way. And then that. And we do this a lot. And it's important to notice how quickly we can create a world that's really intense and heavy. And then in the next moment, it's like a bubble pops. And like, well, what's the problem? And then a few minutes later, the mind, in a sense, whips up a head of steam about something and creates the illusion that this is, somebody's got to do something or this is terrible, right? And then again, it can pop. Even with something terrible like uh, what happened in Boston, you know, we, we probably have been all over the map, I'm guessing. Uh, you know, sometimes, like, this can't be true, this, you know, whatever, Blaming somebody, blaming Obama and the drone strikes, and now people are getting... But we can tie ourselves up in knots, and then in other moments, we can feel just, well, this is how it is. We live in this kind of world where people do these kinds of things. What would be the appropriate way, wholesome way, to respond to living in this kind of world? You know, And that's a different response to it. And you can just see culturally, like how, like the media, for example, tends to want to whip up the, the froth. Because it's good for ratings. You know, because it keeps us glued to the media. And, uh, so we don't have to buy into that. We can see that and we can pop it. It's like mindfulness in a sense steps out of the froth and recognizes, oh, this is froth. This is intense entanglement. And it hurts like this. Can this be okay? Because we don't want to create froth by pointing our finger at all the people who are in the froth. You know, that's another way, like uh, hating the media, for example. Or So there's generally we just swing from one kind of froth to another. But we can step out and we can go, oh, this is how it is now. Other thoughts to mind? <laughs> I'm not sure I know what a snuggie is. <laughs> I will tonight. <laughs> Sounds comfortable though. <laughs> Yeah, this is the great thing about uh, mindfulness. Because remember, mindfulness is its wisdom. I'm going to open the window a little bit more now that we have the fan off. Mindfulness is a kind of wisdom. So, in a way, we should 
know, we should use uh, two words. We should say wisdom mindfulness, because mindfulness technically refers to this part of the attention that's remembering it's like this now. But it also implies a kind of wisdom that's not confused by what it's seen when it's open to the way that it is. So the mind um, has an experience and mindfulness knows the experience and in a sense asks, can this be okay? And, uh, and, and then what happens out of that question, like, because basically we say, is it safe to relax? It is this way now. Is it a safe to relax with the way that it is? And part of the mind, the conditioned or habit mind, is saying, no, it's not safe. It's painful. It's dangerous to relax to, with, to pain. Isn't that a deep assumption that we just have imprinted in our minds? Pain is dangerous. But is pain dangerous, actually? Like, if there's some emotional pain that we're feeling right now, is it... Uh, more skillful to get tight around it or just to relax? Does it actually help to get tight around pain? Like next time you bang your head or stub your toe, take this as an experiment, you know, and just see. Well, I bet, that just to keep it simple, two options. I can relax. I can sit down and just feel my toe throbbing. Or I can dance around and curse and scream, you know, whatever we maybe are conditioned to do. And just look carefully at the two responses and see what's useful. So when the mind says, no, it's not okay, the thing is, mindfulness can just step back, well, can that be okay? Can it be okay to be afraid of it being okay? You know, so we just keep stepping back. Uh, there was this great teacher, she died recently, uh, Joko Beck, um, Westerner, um, started the San Diego Zen Center. She was 94 or so when she died. Really great teacher. She has a couple good books out. But she uses this simple acronym, ABC, a bigger container, right? So you just bring that in. So when you're feeling like something's not okay, you just bring in a bigger container. Well, can that be okay? It's like a stepping back. Well, can that be okay? No. Well, how about that? Can that be okay? That the mind doesn't want anything to be okay. Can that be okay? Because that's how it is now. You know, the mind is in that, like the two-year-old, no. It just knows one word, no, no. You want ice cream? No. <laughs> well, can that be okay? When the mind is like that, you know, it just doesn't want to say yes to anything. Well, can that be okay? Because what is it in life that can't be accepted? You know, because sometimes things are really terrible. But that can be accepted, because sometimes in life things are really terrible. But we can accept that. And the nice thing, the reason we can accept that is because things arise due to causes and conditions. So when something's really terrible, it's like the mind, the wisdom in the mind understands it's not a mistake. It's not what we want, of course. Like we get cancer. That's like the real monsters. We get cancer. Well... Can that be okay? Well, no, on one level, like, no, it's not okay that I have cancer. But on another level, it makes certain sense that some of us are going to get cancer. Some of us probably have cancer. I mean, in a room like this, with this many people, there's probably more than a handful that have or, uh, or had cancer. And certainly, if we go into the future, 
you know, who knows what the percentage would be of us that will have cancer. So we can say yes to that. And then if we have a huge emotional reaction to having cancer, we can say yes to that too. And if we just don't want to be conscious, we can even say that yes to that too. Like, I just don't want to be mindful. Okay, I get it. It's like this now. You know, I want to put my head in the sand. And that's like this. So this is the thing about mindfulness. Initially, you, you think it's something I have to do to be mindful. But the more you practice, you realize mindfulness isn't something somebody does. Mindfulness is what the mind is. The mind is mindful. There's, you can't shut it off. It's so once the mind recognizes the sense of the space of awareness, let's call it, once the mind starts to recognize or intuit it, it's like, it's hard to forget. Like, you, you might be really tripping out about something in your life, throwing a real fit, that you'll notice that there's an awareness that the mind is throwing a real fit. And it's like, you'd rather not know. It's embarrassing in a way. It's humiliating to sort of be somewhat aware that you're throwing a fit, but you can't shut it off. It's like, by week five, it's already too late. <laughs> There's no going back. And, you know, you could, you could be really wholehearted in your practice or really lackadaisical, but once the mind sort of intuits something about awareness, like how it's not something anybody does, it's just part of nature. And the mind just begins to trust it. It's a true refuge, actually. But it can't be grasped, right? Because then it's something the mind is knowing. This is the thing about awareness. Like, who, what is the awareness? Well, whatever we conceive of is something that is being known. It's not the awareness. It's not the knowing itself. So it's a real mystery. It's okay that it's a mystery. But the point here is, it, this, like, stepping back, the space of awareness... The dramas that we, the mind creates out of habit will never fill the space of awareness. Awareness will always be able to contain it. It's like the space of the universe, you know. It doesn't matter how big of a football stadium we build. There's going to be enough space. You know, it doesn't matter what kind of drama I act out right now. There is enough space to contain whatever we do, right? Because the universe... It's like the space of awareness. It doesn't have boundaries. So we can always recognize, well, can that be okay? There's always a way to include. And this is an insight. We were literally discovering this inclusive quality of awareness. Awareness includes everything. Right? What is it that the mind can't know? Where are the boundaries of the mind, by the way? Yeah, can you find the boundaries of the mind? No. You can't conceive of where the mind can't go. I mentioned a few weeks ago how this is all mind, right? I mean, we have this idea that there's an external reality, and maybe there is and maybe there isn't, but what we do know is this is all happening in my mind. You know, whatever I'm sensitive to, I'm sensitive, it's being processed in what we call the mind. And our experience of the mind is we can't conceive of any boundary. We can't find the edge of the mind anywhere. It's such a mystery. You know, the amazing thing is we've lived with this mind our whole lives, and we haven't been interested in it. Just like the actual characteristics of the mind. 
And so this is really profound, this question about, well, what happens if the mind says no? But we, that, if that's an object that is being known. You know, everything is an object being known. And we don't even know what it's being known by. But we know it is something being known. Oh, that fit is being known. That fit that's saying, I can't, I don't, it can't be my fault. I can't accept it. That's being known. Well, can that be okay? Can the mind just, can we take refuges just in the knowing? So it's really learning to be in allegiance with the knowing as opposed to what's being known. And that's really the switch. As we develop mindfulness, we're learning to take refuge in the knowing instead of being identified with what's being known. And it's a real dramatic switch initially. Other thoughts? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in some ways, it's a little harder initially, but because you're detached or disconnected from emotions, maybe they're suppressed or repressed, then, but because of that relative distance, you can cultivate some calm, deepen the sensitivity of the mind, right? Part of what we're doing in our formal meditation practice is we're learning to be more profoundly sensitive. And then what that sensitivity will reveal is that numbness, is that experience of closing down or shutting off, because that's an actual experience. But it's different, you know, like when we have, when I have fear, you know, it seems to have a location, you know, and it seems to have particular characteristics. But numbness is slightly different. There are some emotional states, and they're characterized by being everywhere equally. So like when we're feeling numb, or when we're feeling, um, sometimes depression is like this, or sadness, like it doesn't have a location. It's like the whole space of the mind-body equally shares that, so it doesn't stand out. It's not actually easy to pay attention to, because we're used to paying attention to things that have a location. But you can learn, we can learn to recognize that general affect of the mind, like being closed down or being numb, or the absence of a feeling of aliveness, the absence of the movement of emotion, right? So we can be aware of that, and that unlocks the door. But it's initially it's more challenging so we just spend um, our time developing sensitivity because it's challenging because it's subtle. It's subtle because it doesn't have, it's not what we're used to looking at. You know, we're used to looking at points of intensity. But here, this is something that's everywhere. But it can be seen and it will, it will come online. You know, it will rise up into the, you know, place where the mind can see, oh, oh what is this? You know, it's like a feeling of being dead or flat. Oh, oh. And then eventually, as, you, as the mind listens, just like I, I think I mentioned, you know, when we're walking and it's dusk and we hear a creature in the woods, 
you know, it's amazing. Like all of our animal instincts come to the surface, how still, how observant, how sensitive we can be. Or we're in a new environment, you know, we just become so attuned. But it's the same thing with the inner space of meditation. You know, we can become so profoundly sensitive that basically nothing is below the radar screen. Everything gets amplified because of the stillness of the mind, the balance of the mind. So part of what we're doing is developing wisdom, but part of what we're doing is we're um, strengthening the mechanism of sensitivity. You know, and basically that happens by becoming really steady, steadying the mind. When we're all over the place, the mind's not very sensitive. We miss a lot. But when the mind's really steady, that continuity of, of mindfulness, not forgetting the present moment, then it's amazing what the mind can detect. More than we want to see. Except that we realize there's only one way forward, which is seeing what we're not yet seeing. And that we realize repression, suppression, distraction is not a strategy for happiness. And that really motivates us to keep developing the sensitivity. Somebody have their hand up over here? Right. So remember I said that it's like it's a matter of allegiance, taking a, uh, be, being in allegiance with the knowing or being a, a, in allegiance with what's being known, right? So here we're interacting or you're interacting with somebody, maybe it's a challenging relationship you have and there needs to be some boundaries set or you need to give the person some feedback and just to protect yourself, just to have some basic safety. But... The question is, do you actually have to do that, or can you taking refuge in the knowing, which would mean, you, by taking refuge in the knowing, you're really sensitive, you're really clearly aware of how the relationship is out of balance, because you're taking refuge in the knowing. But you're not the one who's out of balance. You're aware that the relationship is out of balance. And so... Basically, you're taking refuge in the knowing, and you're letting the personality be what's known. And the personality is still going to do what it's going to do. And there you are being aware of you saying, you know, I really don't like it when you say this, when you speak to me in this way, or something like that. So, you know, when we have to deal with life, mundane things like making breakfast for ourselves, or difficult things like communicating in a relationship about our needs... The question is, do we have to do that in the sense that we normally think? Or can we be in this mindful place, this uh, in the knowing? And will life continue, including will the personality continue? I'm, I'll guarantee you that things just continue. The personality just keeps doing what it's going to do. It responds. And the only way that the personality stops responding is if the personality says, don't respond. right? But that can be observed, too. And you can see how that's not really working very well, right? That will be just known in the sensitivity. And see, there's a real fluency, too, between what's being known and everything that's unfolding. This is why it's such a skillful way, because by 
in a sense, giving everything to the knowing, where that knowing, like what's being known, gets fed right into the conditions that are happening. You know, the body-mind, the thing that's operating in the world, that's making choices, that's refraining, that's engaging. It's all being fed by the purity of that knowing. So it sounds like disengagement. This is this is question comes up 20 times in each intro class. This whole, it, you know, basically somebody's saying, it sounds like what you're saying is detachment, you know, a disengagement with life. But actually, what Buddha, the Buddha is teaching is how to be fully, completely engaged in life. Just the opposite. But it's through this understanding that instead of trying to be engaged, you know how this is, it's like, I'm really trying to be there for you, you know. I'm really trying to be a good basketball player. But, you know, that often gets in the way. And it's just true generally in life. The best way to live our life is not to try to live life, but to take the position of the knowing. Be the knowing. And let life live. You know, I know it sounds funny. It's hard to language it. But you're basically letting everything be nature. Internally, everything is nature. Externally, everything is nature. Nature knows what it's doing. The only piece that can support nature doing what nature does is that profound sensitivity, being present. Because that sort of feeds back into nature doing nature's business. So either nature is doing nature's business blindly, or nature is doing nature's business with that profound sensitivity. And so that's the discovery of the Buddha, basically, is to take the refuge in the knowing. And it changes everything. Because so much of our suffering, maybe all of our suffering, is because of the mind's identification with the objects of experience. So I have a sense of me having that difficult interaction with you, and I'm identified with the me who's having the difficult interaction. And that creates the appearance of pain. I'm stressed. But if I'm taking refuge in the knowing and that interaction is happening, there doesn't happen to be any problems. It either goes well or it doesn't go well. If it doesn't go well, the knowing recognizes that it's not going well and will learn from it. You know, if it goes well, the knowing will recognize it's gone well and will learn from it. You know, so that's what we do. But it's hard because we're really, uh, um, out of habit, we're really invested in being the doer. That's the basic sin. In Buddhism, the basic sin is the identity with the doer, with the doing. We construct the somebody who's doing nature, nature's work. And that can be undone. That can be unlearned, so to speak, with practice. Maybe one more question, if there is any, and then we'll do a few minutes of the mudita, the appreciative joy practice. Yeah, Daniel, right? Um, when I've been sitting this past week, I've had a sort of problem or issue that keeps coming to mind, and I had sort of two reactions to it. One is uh, sort of remembering something that you abuse, like you don't you don't have to think about this right now, and return to anger. Um, but I also have thought this seems like a good idea to sort of let my mind think about this issue because it feels like safe space do it in, and I've been confused as to 
I don't know. It's like it feels like maybe I should do this, but I also feel like, oh no, go back to the anger. And mm-hmm. So there's just sort of confusion about what ends up happening. So there's really three options. And I'd, I wouldn't recommend doing this third option during your formal sitting time, but it's really useful to do, which is sort of what you explained. It is really wholesome to have a neutral space to think or reflect about some of the difficult or important areas of our life, but not in our meditation time. So you're, you know, it was probably correct to see, oh yeah, this is useful. But then what I would have said to myself is something, so let's, you know, Later today, you know, we'll go take a walk and I'll think about this because it, it seems like I could use some thinking. But right now, this is just thought being known. So the other two options is whether you return to the anchor or whether you, in that moment of noticing that the mind is thinking, you go from the content, which in meditation practice isn't very important, to what's underneath the content. Is there a charge in the body or mind, like an emotional charge? Does this content, which you're thinking, is there some fear underneath it, or some hope, you know, or some excitement, or joy? You know, it could be any number of emotions. And then you look at that emotion, and you notice whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. And you get intimate, you open to the pleasantness or unpleasantness of the charge that's related to the content. That's one thing you can do, or you can return. If the mind is really balanced, you might, it might be better to investigate what's underneath the content. If the mind's a little not so steady, then it might be better to just go right back because you'll probably get seduced by the content if there's not enough calm and steadiness. But it is useful to have other parts of our day where we can be reflective. Some people journal. Some people have a, a really close relationship where they can talk to a good friend about sort of the issues of their life. And that friend is just basically there to listen. So it, it kind of creates the space, that neutral space to get some clarity about certain issues. We don't really have that many places like that, So, but it, they are useful. But we really want to protect, especially in the beginning, so you really get a sense of the difference between those two things, the reflecting on the problems in our life or whatever's going on, the choices in our lives, and the cultivation of mindfulness. So initially I'd be really disciplined about when you catch yourself, I mean, you're going to do it anyway, but when, you, when you're consciously aware that you're reflecting on some aspect of your life, then in that moment, clearly recognize, now I'm thinking, so I can either return to the anchor, I can see what's underneath, I can investigate the present moment reality of what's underneath the thinking, and I can remind myself that this is something good to do, but not now. You know, That's basically how I would work with it. So I'll just take two minutes uh, to do a little introduction to the mudita, the, just another version of loving-kindness where we're training the mind to connect with what's beautiful. So let's just take a moment, sitting comfortably, and bring to mind somebody whose happiness or whose success is apparent to you. And it can be quite simple. A friend of yours just got a new car. So something as mundane as that, uh Two people you know are really having a nice relationship. Their relationship is really blossoming. They're really happy together. Um, you remember your niece playing in the snow a couple of weeks ago and how happy she was. So things simple like that bring to mind some experience where somebody was happy or experiencing some success.
and fill your heart as you are able to remember this person and repeat these phrases. May your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. Now we know that things will change, but the wish is may your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. And you can use a different word besides happiness, whatever fits the memory you're bringing to mind. May the peace in your life continue. May it increase. May it never end. Try it a few times on your own. You might have a friend who's more confident in their life. May your confidence continue. May it increase. May it never end. Even something as simple as hearing a cardinal sing. May your health, your good health continue. May it increase. May it never end. So this is a real art and you can practice it this week. This really lends itself for just being out in the world and training the mind to recognize simple experiences of what's beautiful, what's wholesome. And then practice appreciating it. The heart is capable of appreciating simple, beautiful things. You might just notice there's some green grass. Even something that simple. May this greenness continue. May it increase. May it never end. Without clinging. So experiment with all four of the qualities this week. Do a little bit of the loving-kindness practice every day. You can do it at the beginning of your sit like we did tonight, or at the end, or just independently at another time. But it's really, it lends itself to creativity. So don't be afraid to be creative with the loving-kindness practices. Read the handout again to kind of be familiar with it. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. And also week six, we'll talk about more about practicing in daily life and what that might look like. So it would be great to hear examples of how you're just naturally being mindful in daily life and how that is working for you. So have a good week, everyone. If you have a moment to take one of the folding chairs downstairs, that would be great. See you next Tuesday. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.